Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best coaches in the industry to teach you guys how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier men's lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is the show we wish we had a decade ago. This show is about you, and we're here to help you become the best man you can be in every area of your life. Make sure to stay up to date with everything going on here and get some killer free ebooks as well as drills and exercises that'll help you become more charismatic and confident by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. If you're new to the show but you want to know more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, listen to the toolbox at theartofcharmpodcast.com slash toolbox. That's where you'll get the fundamentals of dating and attraction such as body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, all that stuff that's more important than you might think. We've got boot camps running every single month here in California. Details at theartofcharm.com, and I'm looking forward to meeting all of you guys here at The Art of Charm. Enjoy. All right, today we're here with my friend James Swanwick. We're going to talk about why fear of success is just as real as fear of failure. We're also going to talk about how he bluffed his way onto ESPN and into a job as a sports center anchor, which is very impressive and very cool and how to formulate a plan and take action despite your fear. So in other words, feeling the fear and doing it anyway, recognizing sticking points or fear and moving forward in spite of it, and why failure is actually an integral part of success. And we're gonna talk about how he stopped drinking and how you can do it too if you decide to, that is. So enjoy this one with James Swanwick. So James, thanks for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. And uh, I know that your show is crushing it right now. And so I figured we might as well get in touch and and do a little cross promo because I think, honestly, my guys will love what you have to say, especially given your story and, and things like that. It's it's sort of almost a testament to putting yourself out there, getting it done, and also maybe a little bit of social engineering. Well, thank you, Jordan. Great to be here. I'm, I'm glad that we're banging it out in the iTunes rankings going head to head. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You know, and it's, it's funny because it's, it's like one day you're ahead, the next day I'm ahead, and then one day like neither of us are there and we're like who are these punks you know in, in the front but then yeah. af after their book launches over they're just like you know number seven thousand in itunes never to be heard from again so as long as we beat jillian michaels from the biggest loser i'm happy i know <laughs> how annoying is it when she's all like here's some token advice that i got from that my like assistant threw together and i'm gonna release it now and since i'm i was on tv i'm famous and i get everything yeah. handed to me yeah. I mean, not that she hasn't worked for what she's got now, but her, like the show, it's just kind of like, why do people bother with this with a million other fitness podcasts that aren't just like, you can do it, girls, or whatever. Yeah. 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 Um, well, you are way much cooler than Jillian Michaels, Jordan. Trust me. I've been listening to your podcast for a while now, and the content I get out of that is far more interesting and useful to me than, than it is listening to Jillian Michaels. I appreciate it. It sounds like maybe you two got some history. I don't know. <laughs> um, but anyway, you're a former ESPN anchor on SportsCenter, which is pretty cool. Now, is this something you did in the States? Did you do it in Australia? What does that mean? Yeah, no, I did it here in the States. I did it in Bristol, Connecticut, where ESPN is based, and I was an international anchor. So you've got the domestic show, which goes out all across America, and then you've got the international version of Sports Center, which airs into Australia, New Zealand, England, South Africa, all through Europe and Asia as well. And that was the one that I was on. I was also on the domestic show on occasion when I went on to speak about Champions League soccer and, and Wimbledon and... I think you mean football there, buddy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's kind of funny because when I think of international sports, I think of like drunk Russian guys slapping each other or like what are those old sports center commercials where it's like 
a dude diving off of a high dive into a pile of sand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we we covered some of those weird weird sports, but mostly I was talking about the American sports, you know, NFL and baseball and basketball for an international audience. I've lived in the US 11 years, so I'm very familiar. I'm a huge Denver Broncos fan. I'm a big LA uh, Dodgers fan, and so I'm pretty in tune with American sports, and so therefore I could explain it a lot better to an international audience that maybe isn't so familiar with it. Yeah, so it wasn't like curling. The action's never been hotter on the ice. Wait a minute. Yeah, that, that was a good accent. Was, was, was it? Sri, was it a Sri Lankan accent? I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> it was. That was my Tamil Sri Lankan accent. Good ear. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So. You actually got that job by essentially bluffing your way through ESPN, if I can say that without being offensive, and you became a Sports Center anchor that way. Yeah, I did actually. I mean, my background really is I was a journalist for many years. I was born in Brisbane, Australia. I worked for a Rupert Murdoch broadsheet newspaper for about six years. I moved over to London, became a sports journalist for Sky Sports, which is like the British equivalent of Fox Sports over here in the U.S., and then I moved to Los Angeles uh, around 2002, 2003 and became a celebrity interviewer where I interviewed movie stars for newspapers and magazines. And then in about 2010, I'd kind of taken a year off and I wasn't working and I was, wasn't really sure what I was going to do. And this opportunity came about to audition for ESPN to become a sports center anchor. And just to put this in context, it had been my childhood dream to host a television show for 20 years. I dreamed of you know hosting my own TV show or being an anchor, if you like. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in fact, there's a home video of me on my on my website at jameswanick.com for when I was just 13 years old, and I'm pretending to be a news anchor. I've got the high pitched voice, you know, my balls haven't dropped at this point. Right. <laughs> but uh, you know, so when the opportunity came, arose, you know, it was tw- it was 20 years of dreaming about it, um, and so I had to really seize my opportunity and go for it. Yeah, that's I mean that's excellent because most people. They give up their childhood dreams. In fact, I wanted to be a talk show host. I wanted to be a radio show host when I was eight, and then I became a lawyer. Talk about far off the mark. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny because I'd totally forgotten all about it until law school when AJ and I started doing this podcast, and I was like, you know, it's funny. I, I vaguely remember as a kid really wanting to do this, and I tried to build an FM transmitter when I was a kid, and it was like, I'm going to be a radio DJ in our neighborhood and people can listen to me talk on, you know, the radio in our neighborhood. Uh-huh. And I thought that was so cool, but obviously nobody could hear anything outside of my room because it right. was like a $12 transmitter kit that <laughs> probably I didn't even get working. I love the idea that now we have this outlet, but I love the idea that you created your own destiny in, in large part by just going for it. And so we were talking before the show and too many people take no action because they're afraid of failure. But what people don't really talk about is people taking no action because they're afraid of success. Yeah, absolutely. I was in this situation where I had this opportunity to go and audition. And I'll tell the story about how I got there in a second. But certainly the theme, I guess, that was running through my mind the whole way through this process was I fear failing. I fear not getting this 20-year dream. And I also fear succeeding because what happens if I actually succeed and I get this job? How is my life going to change? All of a sudden, I might be on this show and people realize I'm actually not that good or I realize I'm not as good as I think that I would be or maybe I've got to move city. Uh, Maybe I lose some of my friends because they get jealous of success that I might have. So there were these two kind of conflicting ideas going through my mind as I was going through this process. I had a fear of failure because it was a 20-year dream and it was a fear of success. 
uh, because how is my life going to change? Yeah, I mean, honestly, you really could have ended up in the hurt because a lot of people forget that when you succeed, it's not the end of the road. It does change your life. You know, when you when you get that job that, for example, a lot of guys that I know that were working class growing up that got really kick-ass jobs, a lot of times they're friends back home. There's rifts there. You know, if all your friends are pipe fitters, maybe that's a bad example because those guys are union, probably make a ton of dough. But, like, <laughs> say that all your friends are uh, baristas or something like that, and I'm not trying to look down on anybody with any particular job, but if if you make it to Wall Street and your friends are still, like, flipping burgers or something like that back in the old neighborhood, they might not want to hang out with you. And certainly the girl you marry is not going to get along with all your buddies' wives in, yeah. in, without a lot of effort. And people yeah. are afraid of that because they see that and they go, oh, I want a nice lifestyle. I've worked my butt off. It's going to be really great. But they also want to go home and not feel like an alien. Yeah, and it's real. It's, it's, it's real. a real fear. It is a real fear. I mean, I remember when I was interviewing the movie stars in Los Angeles, I was interviewing Brad Pitt Angelina Jolie, Tom Cruise, like like big name players in Hollywood. And I'd go back to Australia to visit my friends and family for a couple of weeks once a year. And on the first trip I went back after I did these interviews, I told my friends about interviewing Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. And they treated me like I was an outcast. Like they did not want to hear it. I mean, they were kind of super interested in the first five minutes. And then after that, I could just see them turn where it was like, I could see the jealousy and the and they were kind of like envious and they also thought that I was big noting myself, that I was showing off. And truth be known, maybe I was a little bit, you know, maybe I was name dropping, but just seeing that was a real eye-opening experience for me. And then in future, every time I went back to Australia, they'd ask me what I was doing and I'd just play it down like, oh yeah, you know, I'm just still doing some interviews and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, what's going on with you? And just try and avoid it because, you know, that success that I got from doing that wasn't wasn't really appreciated by by some people, you know, because it's like I've seemingly moved on, moved on to another country and doing this great glamorous thing, and some of them are just in the same old same old. So, so yeah, I think that was kind of like a fear I had when I was started to go for that ESPN job. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense because they want to hear ah, it's a job like any other, and meanwhile you're you're stoked on it, and they're going, well, screw you for liking your own life, you butthead, yeah. or whatever. And it's subconscious. It doesn't mean your friends are jerks and they don't want no. you to succeed. And it happens with everything. It's, if all your friends are sort of like chubby video game dudes or something like that, or mm-hmm. you know, workaholics like you know my friends used to be and things like that, and then suddenly mm-hmm. you go, you know what? I'm going to go get in shape. Your friends don't go. I don't want you to get in shape, jerk. You know, they just think, oh, okay. Now I have to get in shape, and I don't like the idea of having to work. You shine a light on where their shortcomings are, and people don't like that, and they resent you for it, but it's subconscious. It doesn't mean your friends are are haters. It just means they're comfortable with where you were because they were comfortable with where they were. And so yeah. if, if you start pushing your comfort zone, they have to then rationalize why they're not doing that, and usually that, instead of them going, well, you know what, I could be in better shape, I just need to put effort into it, what they do is they go, oh, he's some sort of musclehead idiot now, because it's yeah. easier, and it doesn't. they don't even mean it, their brains do that because it's easier than saying, hey, you know what? If James did it, I should probably go do it too. I don't have an excuse anymore. Yeah, well said, Jordan. Yeah, the other thing is is that when you actually do sort of grow in your self-development, when you do improve and your friends don't, you notice that contrast. You notice that difference. And then at some point, those friends that you had, you will feel like they're starting to drag you down. And it sounds really mean and it sounds nasty, but it's just life. If you want to progress and you want to move forward and you want to improve your health or you want to improve your finances or you want to improve your living situation or whatever it is, 
sometimes you have to like say goodbye to your friends. You know, sometimes if you keep hanging out with them, then you're never going to be aiming for lofty heights. So again, I guess that fear of success and going for the ESPN gig was um, maybe I'll lose some of my friends. Maybe I'll have to change my friends, you know? And then that coupled with having a fear of failing because I've been like thinking about this for 20 years, it was like a double whammy. Yeah, I can only imagine. So tell us about how you got the job. Where was the bluff? How did the story unfold? Yeah, sure. So a friend of mine uh, emailed me out of the blue and said, ESPN is looking for an international anchor. I thought you'd be great for it. Do you want me to introduce you to this producer? And I said, great, introduce me. The producer said, nice to meet you. I'm over in Bristol, Connecticut. You're over in Los Angeles, California. Maybe we'll get you over to ESPN one day to do an audition. And then as soon as he said one day, I knew that you know this was not a priority. I'm going to have to make this happen. I'm going to have to take action to really get this going. So I found out that he was going to be in Las Vegas at a conference the following week. I just emailed him and said, hey, listen, I understand you're going to be in Vegas next week. Why don't I just pop on over? I'll fly over and I'll just meet you for lunch. And he said, okay, sure. So I literally bought a $100 ticket, JetBlue. I flew from Burbank Airport into Las Vegas Airport. I got a taxi to the Hard Rock Cafe on Las Vegas Boulevard. And I met with this producer and I just set about for two hours trying to sort of charm him and build up a rapport. We got along famously and at the end... He said to me, so yeah, maybe we'll get you over to ESPN one day to do an audition. So I hadn't really moved the needle. So I flew back to Los Angeles and he went back over to Bristol, Connecticut on the East Coast. And that could have been the end of the story. But I thought about it. I was in Los Angeles for a couple of days and I said, okay, I've got to somehow get into that ESPN studio to do this audition. He's not inviting me to do it. He's just saying one day, how am I going to do this? So what I did was I contacted him and I said, listen, coincidentally, I'm going to be in New York next week. What are the odds, right? Why don't I just pop on over to Bristol and do the audition then? He replied a couple of days later. He said, okay, sure. If you're already going to be in New York, all right. Seems like a probably good opportunity for you to come in. Let's do it then. So then I just bought the ticket. I, w- I had no plans to go to New York. It was just a bluff. So I figured, well, if he said yes, I'll fly. And if he said no, I'd, I won't waste my time. Right. So I flew to New York. They sent a car for me. They picked me up in Manhattan and I, they took me the two hours to Bristol, Connecticut. And I walked into the ESPN studios and they put, put me up in a hotel and I put a, wore a suit and tie and I walked down into the studio. They pulled out all the stops, right? Yeah, I'm going to put on a suit and a tie. You're probably sweating balls because you're thinking, I'm about to audition for Sports Center. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, I was. It was like going to the gallows, you know, in kind of like 17th century France. Like I was about to get my head chopped off, you know. I'm like, where I met the producer to where the actual studio is, is about a five minute walk across the campus of oh, these ESPN studios. Anyway, I get in there, I sit down, I put the earpiece in, I look into the teleprompter. They've written down some words for me to say. A director's talking in my ear. There's a cameraman, a lighting man, a teleprompter guy. And I sit there and I have a panic attack. A real one? Because first of all, I don't even really know what that is. Yeah, so a panic attack is when you start to sweat profusely, your hands start to move, and like you have trouble breathing. So Sounds like fun. It's not fun at all. <laughs> now, I said to them, like I was literally 10 seconds away from reading this teleprompter, and, and I had to stop, and I said, actually, can you just give me a minute? And I sat there for like 30 seconds, and I just tried to calm myself. Calm, 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 calm. Then I said, come on, James, just do it. Just do it. Just do it. And I said, okay, I'm ready. And I wasn't really ready, but I said, let's do it anyway. So the guy counted down, five, four, three, two, one. And I said, I looked in the teleprompter and I said, 
Good evening, everyone. I'm James Swanick. Welcome to Sports Center. Let's start with the NFL. Could you say it just like that? Just like that. Oh, it was terrible. Wow. <laughs> it was really, really, really bad. Yes. Anyway, as soon as it was over, I was like, oh, this is a disaster. So they took the video cassette, they took it up to the producer's office. We looked at it, and he said, no, this is no good. You're too wooden. What's with the voice? There's no animation here. Just basically ripped me to shreds in a very polite way. <laughs> yeah. And in the best way possible, you're never getting this job. So just go home. Exactly. Right? Oh my God. And so then I was at a crossroads. I was at a crossroads. He's telling me this and I, he was absolutely right. And I'm cringing with embarrassment as I look at the video. And the crossroads that I was at was this. I could either say, okay, well, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate the opportunity and walk out with my tail between my legs or I could try and persuade him to give me another shot. So I chose the latter. I persuaded him to give me another shot. I said, can you give me another chance? Can I come back tomorrow and go again? And he said, all right, come back tomorrow and I'll give you one last shot. So I went home. I went to sleep. I thought about it. I went for a run the next day. I tried to psych myself up. I had a shower. I got on the suit. I went back in and I stormed down into the ESPN studio, super, super confident. I sat down in the chair and I, the lights were on me and I looked into the teleprompter. I put the earpiece in. And I started to feel the panic attack come again. <laughs> like it was just, I couldn't shake it. It was yeah. like, I'm so nervous. I'm so nervous. Same thing again. I just said to myself, come on, James, just keep moving forward. Just do this. Just do it like you did when you were a 13 year old kid back in Brisbane, Australia. So I looked into the, the camera. The director said, five, four, three, two, one. And this time I said, Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Sports Center. James Swanick here alongside Anthony Howard, here to take you into the weekend with a smorgasbord of sports. Let's start with the NFL. Nice. And this time I nailed it. I mean, I nailed it compared to the first time. It still wasn't great. It still wasn't amazing, but it was good enough. We went and took the video cassette up to the producer. We had a look and he goes, yes, excellent. I like it. Good animation, good confidence. You know your stuff. Okay. Be ready in two weeks. I'm going to put you on the air in two weeks. <laughs> and then you had a panic attack again, probably. <laughs> <laughs> then I was like, oh, my God. I just got offered a job hosting Sports Center on ESPN. And two weeks later, I was back there in Bristol, Connecticut, and I went to the gallows again, felt like I was getting my head chopped off, and I looked into the teleprompter, and I did the introduction, and I did the first show. Was it perfect? No. I would have given myself about a six out of ten. But I did it, and I got through it, and from there I ended up having a two-year deal with ESPN. You know, it just became second nature to me. I was confident. People were recognizing me, emailing me, contacting me. Like All these doors of opportunity opened up for me as a result of that, and it all came back to just taking that first action. You know, like, yes, it was a little bit of a bluff to get the audition, but ultimately the lesson from it is just take action. It's okay to feel the fear, but just push through the fear and just do it anyway. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like a book title, <clears throat> right? Feel the fear and do it anyway. All right, let's get back to the show. It makes sense because a lot of people think, oh, you work your way up through this nebulous job path and you've got to have like an internship at ESPN and then you're doing some other stuff and some other stuff and some other stuff and then dot, 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 one day they're like, oh my God, we need a new anchor. Why don't you sit in the chair? You've been shuffling paper behind the scenes for three years. You should do it. Oh my God, you're so good at it. And no, you were like, I want this job. I'm going to network my way into it and then be like, hey, can I have a shot? And they're going to go, fine, okay. And then you blew it. They liked you enough to give you another shot knowing you could probably pull the stick out of your butt that you had in there mm -hmm. the first time. And then yeah. you got it the second time. 
and a lot of it was tenacity and persistence. I mean, absolutely. People have asked me about this all the time. What are the lessons you took out of this? And I actually came up with like five lessons and I'd be happy to like go yeah. through them now yeah, if you like the five those. points. Sure. So the first thing really that I did in this story was I, I wrote down my goal and I, and I wrote down why I wanted to achieve it. So what was my goal? My goal was to host a TV show. And why did I want to achieve it? Because it had been a childhood dream. I've been doing it for 20 years. So when you're writing this down, the more specific, the better. So when I wrote it down, I wrote, I want to become a sports center anchor on ESPN and achieve my childhood dream of hosting a TV show. Now, for someone else, it might be, I want to lose 10 pounds so I can look good on the beach this summer. Or I want to study Spanish so I can confidently order a meal in a Spanish-speaking restaurant. Before you start out, it's super important to understand your goal and understand why you want to achieve that goal. Because otherwise, you're just going off haphazardly. There's no real emphasis on the goal. It's just kind of like, ah, oh, maybe I get it, maybe I don't. But when you write it down, understand that, and it makes it more powerful. So for me, I wrote down the goal. What do I want to do? I want to become a sports center anchor on ESPN and achieve my childhood dream of hosting a TV show. Have you ever done something like that, Jordan? Of course. I mean, writing down my goals is something I didn't do much of, but I mm -hmm. always had things in mind. And when I get something in my head, I don't release it very much. I mean, ask my parents, mm -hmm. right? It's there. It's happening. And yeah. I will work like a son of a bitch to get it done. And that's been really, really big for me in terms of achieving success in any area. You know, once mm -hmm. I get the idea, I have to get it done. And writing it down, going for it, I always create a map process in my head, but the key for me has been also flexibility. So for example, if I thought, okay, I'm gonna network my way to this introduction, it doesn't just sit there. It's like, okay, I'm gonna meet the people who are in charge of that. Where do they hang out? All right, let's mm -hmm. think about that. What am I gonna do when I see them? What happens if this doesn't work out? Or what happens if they don't, if this guy is like, no, I'm not going to do this, then what? Because if you don't plan it out in advance and have flexibility, what happens is you go, all right, I, you know, I'd love to interview for Sports Center, and they go, yeah, we don't really have any positions. And then you go, oh, my dreams are crushed. Never mind. Wham, I'm going home. Yeah. But if you yeah. go, if they say no to that, then what I'm going to do is call this or do this or send in a tape that has this and then ask for a response by X date or I'm going to just maybe just like show up and try to do it. You know, things like that. That's a great segue into the second point I was going to make there, which is to ask yourself how and what questions only. So these are the correct questions. So you need to become a master questioner so you can create the plan to achieve your goal, which you've already done in step one. Okay. So mm -hmm. when you ask yourself how and what questions, for example, what can I do to make this happen? What can I be doing differently? How would I approach this if I knew I couldn't fail? How will I make this happen? And for me, it was, how am I going to get the ESPN job? How will I convince this producer? What action can I take right now to meet this producer? And so forth and so forth and so forth. You ask yourself the why in the first step, which is, you know, why do I want this goal? But in the second step, you only ask how and what questions. And when you ask yourself those how and what questions, like you just come up with so many different ways to achieve your goal. You know, how am I going to do it? Well, you know what I could do? I could fly to Las Vegas and meet him in person. It would cost me a hundred bucks flight and it's a waste of a day if nothing comes of it. But you know what? That's a great option. I'm going to do that. 
What am I going to do when I'm there? Okay, I'm going to talk to him about this and I'm going to talk to him about that. I'm going to convince him that I've got all this great sports background knowledge, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You see what I mean? So when you ask yourself a how or a what question, like it just forces you to come up with different ways for you to achieve your goal. Excellent. Because otherwise you might just be like, why? And then you start daydreaming about how awesome it's going to be. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Well, step two is really about practical steps. You know, how and what are you going to do to to move the needle forward to make this happen? That leads on to the third step, which is once you've come up with those, those possibilities, those possible courses of action, write down your plan of action. How do we decide where the line is between, all right, I'm planning this out and I have contingencies versus I'm thinking of all of the most random things that could possibly happen and have like mm-hmm. a 0.1% chance of happening and going mm-hmm. down every rabbit hole. And then you end up with analysis paralysis where you're like, all right, I'm going to network my way there. Where do they hang out? Here, 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 and here. What if they say no? Then I'm going to do this. What if that doesn't work? Then I'm going to do that. What about the next 10 levels down if those don't work? I mean, where do we sort of stop? Because as you can see, you could really go crazy with this giant flow chart of what might happen and then something does work or doesn't work and goes in a different direction than you anticipated, and then suddenly three hours, three days, three years of your planning are down the drain because none of those contingencies happened, and what you did is psych yourself out from taking action. Step four, this is a nice segue again, step four is take action, begin, take that first step. So to answer your question, just to take it back a second, just say you have 10 possible scenarios, okay? of different courses of action you could take. Pick one or pick two or pick three and discard the other seven or don't discard them, just put them on the back burner and then systematically work through step one or step two or step three first. Now, this plan of action can change. You know, you can improvise as you go along. Um, it doesn't have to be set in stone, but the main thing you have to do is take that first step and take the action because I can't tell you how many people do not take the action. It's one thing to get a whiteboard and to write down, I'm going to do this, I will do this, I'll do this. But it's another thing to actually then go and do it. And so when you're coming up with the plans, write down the plans, the different ways that you could do this, then choose one, two, or three of those options and then take the action implementing one, two, or three of those options and take that first step. I know that it's the hardest step. It is the hardest step. But once you take that first step, doors of opportunity open to you just like they opened for me. If you just look at the whiteboard and go, this is what I'm going to do and then you don't do anything, then okay, just keep living your life the way you've been living it. If you want change in your life, you've got to take action. If you don't want change in your life, that's okay. Don't do anything. Just stay the same. It seems like that's easier said than done, though, right? Like, take action. Okay, how do we know where to start? Your solution is just pick somewhere to start because it doesn't matter because if that fails, you have your other contingencies. But if you don't take action, then nothing will ever happen other than infinite amount of planning for things that you're never really going to do. Why would someone not take action? It's fear, Fear, right? Yeah. It's fear, okay? So it's a fear of failure, and in my case, it was a fear of failure and a fear of success. The thing about fear is this. Everyone has fear and everyone is always going to have fear. We just have to accept it, acknowledge it, understand it, recognize it, and then just decide to push through it anyway. It's like you're standing on a cliff and you know there's a safety net there, but you can't see the safety net. 
The people who succeed in this world, the people who really achieve their dreams are the ones that step off anyway. They can't see the net, but they just know the net will be there to catch them. Successful people know this to be true. I mean, it sounds wishy-washy, but the most successful people in the world, anyone who's ever accomplished anything, have felt the fear and then they've just pushed through it anyway. It's just positive words of encouragement. I mean, there's, we can talk about different strategies and all this kind of thing. At the end of the day, it just comes down to are you tough enough? Are you man enough to recognize the fear and push through anyway? I know on your podcast, Jordan, you teach a lot of guys about how to approach women and then pick up girls and things like that. It's the analogy if you're in a bar and you see a beautiful woman and you think about it for like five seconds and you talk yourself out of it because you're scared, you're fearful that she's going to reject you. But what do you teach your listeners? You just got to do it anyway, right? You got to feel the fear and then just go up and do it anyway. Because if you don't do anything, then nothing's going to happen. Right. Yeah, of course. I mean, you can easily, and that's the thing is people get hooked on that for years. What they'll try to do is write down how a perfect interaction is going to go and like, okay, if I do this and she says this and this is going to happen. And I guess when you're talking about the human element, what you then realize is you can't micro plan for Mm -hmm. each interaction because it's impossible and it will never go down the way that you think. So Mm -hmm. rather than planning everything about what you're going to do and say, you come up Mm -hmm. with some ideas, but the flexibility is really the key. Because if that producer was like, hey, man, I've only got five minutes. What's up? You might have been like, oh, crap. If I sit down and ask him for an introduction, he might just bounce or an audition. Yeah. And so you have to be flexible. You can't go, I have this really cool script about I was going to ask you about your family and your kids. And then we were going to segue gently into Sports Center. And then I was going to be like, hmm, one day I'd like to do that. I mean, then you got to be like, all right, cool, man. Here's the thing. I've always dreamed of being a Sports Center anchor. I think I have what it takes. What does that process look like? And, you know, you have to be able to gauge on the fly is this somebody who's going to be cool with a sort of blunt, direct, methodology or are they going to go Ugh, another one of these guys and just haul ass and never email you again well you can sit there and think about what's he going to do or you can actually just do something and get a result you know exactly you, gotta, you just have to do it you just have to take the action you just have to and here's the other thing it's a nice segue again into you know step number five i guess of this story and that is that when the obstacles come and they will you have to just keep moving forward you can't just take no for an answer. You've got to be willing to change course. You've got to accept that the fear will come. You've got to move through that fear anyway. I mean, the producer, the ESPN producer, he told me, um, you know, right at the beginning, oh, you know, maybe one day we'll get you over to ESPN to do an audition. So that was an obstacle. You know, that was an obstacle that was in the way of my 20-year dream. The fact that he wasn't really pushing it and not really giving me an opportunity. I could have just said, oh, okay, he's not really interested and quit. And then I wouldn't have become a sports center anchor. The producer also said, you know, your audition was terrible. And it was terrible, (laughs) you know. And I could have just said, all right, that sucked and that was fun and then told the story. And you would have found me in 10 years from now crying over a beer telling the story about how I had my shot at ESPN and blew it. That was a setback. Having a panic attack in the ESPN studio was a setback. But I asked for a second chance. You know, that the obstacle came, it got in my way, but I just said, keep moving forward. Keep moving forward, James. Keep moving forward. And he gave me a second shot. And by giving me a second shot, I I managed to do a good enough audition to get the job. You've got to accept failure. Like, you have to accept failure along the way. And I'll tell you this. One thing that I've realized in, in my own life and anything that I've done, Jordan, is that 
when I double my rate of failure, I double my rate of success. It's incredible how it works. And if you're not failing, then you're not trying hard enough. That's my view. Like you actually want to fail over and over and over again. There's this great quote. Remember that Nike commercial from Michael Jordan, the basketball legend back in the the late 90s, I think it was, or early 90s, and it was a Nike commercial and it was Michael Jordan gets out of a limousine and he's walking in slow motion towards a basketball arena and he says, I've missed 9,000 shots in my career. 23 times I've been entrusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I failed over and over and over again in my life and that is why I succeed. Great quote, huh? Yeah, definitely. Because essentially, like you said, you double your rate of failure, you double your rate of success or something along those lines, right? Exactly. So he's just, what, you think he's steeled himself to being okay with failure slash tolerating it as a necessary part of success? Yes, yes, accept it. And when you do accept the failure, when it actually comes, you can recognize it, you can look at it, and say, huh, I expected this. See, the master of anything expects to fail. Arnold Schwarzenegger, seven-time Mr. Olympia, he failed over and over and over again trying to squat and deadlift certain pounds, right? So he didn't always squat 500 pounds. At first, he had to try to squat 250 pounds, and, and then he failed. Then he had to try and squat 300 pounds, and he failed. And then he finally got 300 pounds. And then he tried to squat 400 pounds, And he failed, but then he finally got it, and so forth and so forth and so forth. So he failed over and over and over and over again, but ultimately became a seven-time Mr. Olympia. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes, you just have to accept that failure is a necessary part of success. All right, let's get back to the good stuff. You know, speaking of failure and doing things that are really, really difficult, one thing that you did that I was very impressed by that a lot of people have tried some to some forced to do so by law is you actually quit drinking. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I mean, you stopped drinking, which is weird because you're Australian. <laughs> yeah, I don't fit the stereotype. Right? Well, now they're like looking to revoke your passport, probably. Yeah, they are. Stuff like that. When I go back to Australia, they try to arrest me, you know, for crimes against Australian culture. They lock you up in a bar and they're like, there's only one way for you to get better, right? And they <laughs> just feed you beer. How come you did that and why? Yeah, well, I was never a big drinker. I was never an alcoholic, although everyone assumes that I was. I was just a pretty good binge drinker. I would have a couple drinks during the week and then maybe drink a lot on the weekends. And when I say a lot, it was always enough to just get a buzz on. I was never really drunk. I didn't do any crazy antics. There wasn't one incident where I was like, oh, my God, I've got to quit drinking. But I just I took a 30-day uh, break one year. And I remember at the end of the 30 days just going, wow, I feel amazing. I've lost weight. My skin's better. And I'm sleeping better and I've been a hell of a lot more productive. Hmm, maybe there's something in this. And then the next year, I did it again and it was like, whoa, this is amazing. This is great. But then I went back to drinking, obviously. And then finally, in 2010, I was at the South by Southwest Music Festival in Austin, Texas. And I was out on a Friday night and I'd had a few drinks, nothing too crazy. But I woke up on the Saturday morning in this hotel just in the outskirts of Austin. For whatever reason, I had a terrible hangover, like really, really bad hangover. So I went into this international house of pancakes to have a hungover breakfast and the menu in an international house of pancakes have big bright colors of the food, big photos of the food and I looked at these big bright colors of this disgusting food and I was just felt physically ill. Like I was hungover, I was dehydrated, there were these huge big fat people sitting around stuffing their faces in the IHOP 
And I just said to myself, you know what? I got to change. I don't like this feeling of being hungover. I'm going to see if I can beat my record of 30 days and go for 40 days. So then I went, got to 40 days and I went, yes, I beat my record of 30 days and I feel amazing. You know what? I'm going to go for 50. Then I got to 50 and I said, you know what? I'm going to see if I can go for three months. Then I got to three months and I went, wow, I've lost about 20 pounds in fat. People are saying I look really fit and healthy. I'm sleeping a lot. My work is just like, huh, I've been doing a lot better work lately. And oh, this is interesting. Wow, my friends have changed a little bit. I've got better or higher quality of friend now. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. I'll just keep going. I'll go for six months. And then I got to six months and I was like, bugger it. I'm going to go for one year. And I just kept going, Jordan. I just said, you know what? I'll just keep going. I'll keep. It was like a test to see how long I could go without having a drink. And I got to 12 months and I was back in South by Southwest and I went into a bar and I ordered a Budweiser and I put the Budweiser to my mouth and I was about to drink it to celebrate my one year of sobriety. Uh-huh. And I put it right back down. I said, you know what? I'll just keep going. I'll just keep going. And so I just kept going and now it's been almost four and a half years. Wow. Wow. And you don't miss it at all, huh? I don't miss it. I mean, on occasion, I, I would like to have an ice cold beer with some of my buddies. On occasion, I'd like to enjoy a glass of red wine with a pretty girl. But the benefits that I get from not drinking have far outweighed the pleasures that I used to get from drinking. It's amazing. And people always say, but you know, you can't go out and have a good time if you're not drinking. And like, well, I absolutely challenge that. If anything, I go out more and have an even greater time. People sometimes think I'm drunk because I'm so animated when I'm out and about in a bar or something. But in actual fact, I'm just quietly sipping water or ginger ale or Diet Coke or whatever. You know, people are amazed. And the beautiful thing is that I get to wake up early the next morning. I get to go to the gym, feel healthy and and look good. One of the great effects of quitting drinking or even just seriously reducing your alcohol consumption is that you just look better. I used to have a puffy face, you know, when I was drinking. And then as soon as I... I stopped drinking, like my eyes, the skin around my eyes got better, the puffiness was lost, I worked out in the gym more, I, I got bigger in terms of like muscle size, girls started um, you know, being more attracted to me. There's no real downsides except on July 4th, when it's super hot and you're on the beach in LA and other people are drinking beer, you, on occasion you do want to smash a beer, but you know, that soon passes. Like I said, the benefits of not drinking far outweigh the pleasures that I got from drinking. Yeah, wow. I mean, it seems like a really tough thing to do. Not that I've ever tried to stop. I don't really drink to excess. I like to enjoy scotch. I do it when I listen to this show, drink a little Macallan because I got some great bottles from the company, etc. But yeah, I don't I don't really like to go out and get super smashed as well. That sort of came along with age. Mm-hmm. But I know there's a lot of guys that are like, I can't really think about having fun without the stuff. Yeah, I know. And guys are always asking me that question. You know, oh, I can't. You know, how do you go out and have a good time without it? It's funny, you know, it does take a period of adjustment. You know, in that first 30 days that I did it, it was a little weird. You know, I used to play rugby in Los Angeles for Los Angeles Rugby Club. And at the end of a Saturday game, we'd go to a bar like Sharky's down in Manhattan Beach, which is a big riders pub. Yeah. And in, if you play rugby, you're supposed to be drinking, you know, like beer by the gallon, you know, right, and chug, right. chugging beer and going crazy. I started that 30-day cleanse, if you like, right when I was playing rugby. And so my rugby mates would all give me hell for it. What are you doing? What are you talking about you don't drink? Drink this, drink it. And it was all this pressure the whole time. 
I was strong enough to just say, no, 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 no. And sort of like laugh it off and actually point to my head and say, I'm too strong. I'm too strong in mind. And then they just let it go, you know. So you will get that pressure. You do feel the pressure because, you know, you've got the friends of yours around you who don't quite understand why you're doing it. The easy thing is to just keep doing it. But luckily enough, I was strong enough in that time, in those first sort of two weeks, if you like, to get through that. And then after that, it became really easy, Jordan. Like like I said, I'll keep saying this, the benefits of not drinking far outweigh the pleasures that I got from drinking. Like as soon as the benefits came along, I was like, you know what? I don't need to go back to this. I can still go out and have a good time. I can still pick up girls. I can still have girls attracted to me. Another great benefit is that when women find out that you don't drink or that you've quit drinking, far from them thinking that you're an alcoholic or a social outcast, they actually admire you more. They respect you more. They become more attracted to you because you're obviously a man of self-discipline, you know, a man of health, a man who cares about himself. And she thinks in her eyes, if this guy cares about himself and he's self-disciplined enough to do this, then maybe this guy is going to be self-disciplined enough to take care of me and maybe our future offspring. Right, exactly. It's a signal of ambition, and it's also a sign of maturity, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, any guys listening to this right now, If I mean, I'm not saying you've got to go out there and just quit alcohol. What I did is kind of extreme by, by social standards. But even if you want to just reduce your alcohol intake, just give it a try for 30 days and see how you feel. And I guarantee if you can just get through the first two weeks of it being a little bit awkward when you're at a bar and you're ordering water or soda instead of an alcoholic drink, you know, just get through those first two weeks. After that, it's smooth sailing. It, it really is. Yeah, I agree. I didn't drink much in college, but I drank a lot in law school. I kind of backslid. And the reason was, honestly, I didn't feel the need to in college. And nobody cared. And when I did have people going, come on, drink, I'd say something like, well, you know what? Actually, I try to stay away from that stuff because of family issues. Nobody touches that one. <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah. and it's like your family won't care, and sometimes it's actually true. And it doesn't mean, oh, my parents are alcoholics. But you know, if you say family issues, they're just like, all right, dude, I don't even want to know. And that actually is great when you're a young person and you don't want to deal with peer pressure. When you're older, mm-hmm. you shouldn't need to do that, theoretically. But I can totally get why somebody who's 19 through 25 just wouldn't want to do it. I'm usually all for being authentic and telling the truth, but on this one, it's kind of no one's business, and if that's what gets them off your back, then you know, do it. Well, here's the other thing. I found there was a big difference in the reaction of people when I said I quit drinking as opposed to I don't drink. When I said I don't drink... It's judgy, right? When I say I don't drink, people judge you big time, and it's, you get a much more negative reaction. But when I said I quit drinking, they're like, huh... Tell me about that. Why did you do that? It's kind of the difference between somebody offering you a hot dog and you go, no thanks, I don't want to be a fat ass. And they're like looking at themselves (laughs) like, did you just call me a fat ass? Versus (laughs) being like, no thanks, I'm allergic or something like that, right? And they're like, oh, okay, sorry, I'll, you know, here's some corn (laughs) or whatever, right? (laughs) Here's an ear of raw corn. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I know I was talking about the great positive reaction you get from women when you tell them that you quit drinking, but... When you explain why you quit drinking to guys as well and you really explain it to them, you get a lot of respect from guys as well. Sure. You know, it, like they might give you a little bit of hell initially and call you names, but once they've done it once and you show that you don't react to that or you laugh it off, after that it's like a it's almost like one of recognition. They're like, "Yeah, fair play. Fair play, mate. Yeah. Okay, you quit drinking. All right. I can respect that. No problems." Great. So, 
So tell us a little bit about your show as well. It's funny because I got the press thing here and it says you're the creator of Alpha Male Club, which turns average men into, it says ad asses, like ADD asses. <laughs> so I assume you meant bad asses, but I don't know. Maybe you turn average yeah. men into ADD asses. Yeah, that was a typo. Thank you for pointing that out, Jordan. We turn the average man into a badass. Right. And I don't know whether, I still haven't worked out whether I should be saying badass or badass. Should I keep my Australian accent with the ass or should I go American style with Ooh, ass? I don't know. I think maybe keeping it original sounds good, but other people might be like, saying badass doesn't sound very badass. <laughs> Yeah. So I don't know. That's sort of a creative decision that only you can make, I think. All right. Well, for the purpose of this interview, I'm going to go with my Australian version, okay? So yeah, we transform average men into badasses. So essentially, I have interviewed about 100 New York Times bestselling authors, a couple of movie stars, sexologists, financial experts, and we teach men how to be better men in the areas of women, money, health, happiness, and relationships. So yeah, I have a membership site. The guys come in there and they can access all the videos and interviews that I've done with these guys over the last two years. And then I have the Alpha Male Club podcast, obviously, and, and I do the same thing. I, I interview guys and we help transform men into the best version of themselves. Excellent. And I will soon be appearing on said show as well. Yes, Jordan Harbinger will be there indeed from The Art of Charm. Great to have you over there. Looking forward to that. And um, just to a big shout out to you. Your your show is awesome. And I've been listening to it, you know, for some time now. And, and my hat off to you, sir. It's it's terrific. In fact, when I listen to it, I get a lot of ideas for my own show because it's kind of similar in the sense that we're yeah. both trying to inspire men to be better men, right? Yeah, except turning them to ADD asses or, <laughs> or badasses. As badasses. Well. Badasses. Yeah. I, that's yeah. my Sri Lankan. That's my northern Sri Lankan right there. Thanks so much, man. Much appreciated. Great show. Good to have you on, and I appreciate the time. I think a lot of guys are really going to dig. For one thing, having the ESPN gig and bluffing your way there is inspirational, but also I, I get a lot of email from guys who are like, how do I quit drinking? And I'm like, I don't really know. I haven't bothered, <laughs> you know? So, wow. so I'm glad. Yeah, well, if they want to reach me, just get me at my personal website, jameswanick.com. That's J-A-M-E-S-S-W-A-N-W-I-C-K. Yeah, we'll link to the, both of those in the show notes, alphamaleclub.com, jameswanwick.com. We'll be linked up in the show notes, so no problem. If I'd love to hear from you guys. And anyone who wants to quit drinking, just get a hold of me, and I'll give you some, some more tips. And uh, if you're having problems with, with fear and fear of failure or fear of success, get a hold of me as well, and I'll kick your ass and make sure you push through it. That's the way to do it. Thanks again, James. Much appreciated. Thank you, Jordan. All right, another good one with my friend James Swanwick. I love the idea of sort of just – shortcutting, hacking your way onto Sports Center of all places. I mean, talk about being ballsy and just going for it. And despite the setback with the panic attacks and the initial failure, just charging through and doing it anyway. I think there's a lesson in there. It's like the embodiment of Nike's just do it right there. And I, I love the idea that there's guys out there quitting drinking, knocking off bad habits. And again, no judgment. I drink, but I don't drink to excess. And I wish I had stopped earlier. And I've realized it's a habit that a lot of us start even if we don't like to, simply because we're interested in being like everyone else, hanging out or even getting rid of insecurities that as we grow, we don't necessarily have anymore, especially if you're applying what you learn here at The Art of Charm. So I hope you guys enjoyed listening to that show as much as I enjoyed recording it for you. Until next time. All right, show feedback and guest suggestions. We rely on you guys to help keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone who's a good fit for the show, let us know at jordanh at theartofcharm.com. 
boot camp details for our live programs also at theartofcharm.com, and that's where you're going to find links to us on Twitter, Facebook, and other social media as well. If you're listening to this but you're not subscribed in iTunes or Stitcher or something like that, then that needs to change. Getting our shows delivered free to your phone or computer is the best way to make sure you don't miss a thing. You can do that by going to iTunes and searching for the Art of Charm podcast or by going to theartofcharm.com slash iTunes and clicking subscribe. That's really it. And you guys can help us. Subscribe in iTunes and give us a five-star rating. Write something nice and we will love you forever. Just go to iTunes.com slash theartofcharm and it'll take you right there. When you write us a review, it not only makes us feel proud, but it helps keep us up in the ranks so that other people who can use this information can find the show more easily to get the credible advice that they need. It's also the best way to support the show other than purchasing products and training from us. So tell your friends because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else either in person or shared on the web. Now have a great week. Go out there and get social and leave everything better than you found it.